Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. It's World AIDS Day, a day marked every December 1st since 1988 to encourage awareness and prevention of HIV. Coming up, we hear the story of a young Connecticut man living with the virus, and we want to hear from you, too. Have you noticed stigma decreasing surrounding HIV AIDS? Have medical advances in treatment of the disease given you or someone you love hope? We'll take your calls later in the show, but here's the number, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, we're focusing the first part of the show on foster care. Now, depending on what state you live, the systems in place to support a child without a parent or guardian can vary. Later, we'll hear from a young woman in Connecticut about her experience aging out of the foster care system. My first guest is from California. Author Regina Louise, it's her first trip to the East Coast. She's in Hartford today so she can speak at the Girl Within Luncheon, hosted by the Village for Children and Families. The Village supports programs for at-risk girls and young women in Greater Hartford. Regina has become an advocate for at-risk children. She's author of the book Somebody, Someone. And Regina, welcome to the studio. Thank you. I understand you were born in Texas. How did you find your way to California? Wow. Through Greyhound buses and trains, I originally lived with the woman who took my mother in, and you would call it fictive kin. And when that failed due to abuse, I was sent to my mother, who I met for the first time. And when that failed, I was sent to my father. And when that failed, we went back and forth and back and forth until I arrived in California and then took my life into my own hands. You had a very traumatic childhood. You mentioned the abuse uh, um, at one of the homes and what what led you to flee. Right. Uh, Talk us through what that was like growing up a young girl and not feeling that you had a place to belong? It was not easy until, it actually was okay until I realized I don't belong here. So Lucy, I had to find a place to belong. And I would say I found that early on within me. And that made it a lot more palatable to know that I was wanted and I did belong, just not to the people I had been born into. How old were you when you were able to live with your biological mother, and um, why did that relationship not work out? My first memory of attempting to live with my mother, I would have been 10 or 11. I There's an emotional reason that I think it's, she couldn't do it, and then the real reason Historically, she was in she was pop, she impoverished. She lived in an environment that could not support her intellectually, spiritually, psychically. Therefore, she didn't have the foundation to mother. That was not in her. So she could not play that forward. Mm-hmm. Instead, she she played her trauma. She played her damage forward. 
This is something that um, you realized as an adult, but as a young girl, how did you feel? How did you work through those emotions, Regina? I had an incredible imagination. I imagined that no matter where I was, no matter what was going on, I had my mom or the idea that one day I would have her. So let's say if I were in a talent show and there was an empty seat, I would put her face there and say, she's here. I'm doing this for you. I'm going to sing this song. I'm going to act this scene for you. So I had this ability to fantasize and use my imagination as a way to to um, desensitize the, the, the loss. and yeah. In your book, uh, Somebody, Someone, you uh, recount that uh, horrific moment where you received a, a terrible beating by mm. another uh, child, youth, uh, in the home that yes. you were living in. When you fled to uh, your friend's house and the mother there uh, took you in and helped you uh, clean your wounds, At that moment, you knew you couldn't go back there? Yes, because I had made a pact with God. See, Lucy, you're hitting those emotional beats, aren't you? (laughs) I made a pact with God that should my keepers beat me one more time, that it would be a sign from him that they were trying to kill me. And in that case, I would have to leave. So when that time came and she wanted to beat the black off me, I realized I have to go because if if I stay, she's going to kill me, and I can't. I can't let that happen. So I'm going, Mm -hmm. and I knew that was it. And I'm that person that when I make a decision, it's it's done Mm -hmm. even now. You mentioned you made your way out to California by Greyhound bus, by train, alone. Yes. When you got to California... Who greeted you, and um, how did that work out? Because you were trying to um, reunite with your biological father? Right. His wife met me. My father worked for Barry White, and at the time, he was working on an album. And that took him, you know, late into the night to be in the studio. So when I arrived, his wife, Nadine, we just call her Nadine, received me at the airport. And you were hoping that this was going to be your your home? I wasn't sure. I think, Lucy, to be quite honest, I was so traumatized, so out of my body at that time. I can't tell you what I thought. It, it, I was just there. One more move, one more place, one more stranger. So for me, it was, it was just movement. I wasn't sure. But, you know, I I decided let's just see what happens. But if I don't want to be here, I will not stay. This is where we live. I'm speaking with Regina Louise. She's an advocate for at-risk children, a leadership coach, and author of Somebody, Someone. Uh, She's in Hartford today to speak at the Girl Within Luncheon, uh, hosted by the Village for Children and Families. Today we're talking about foster care. And Regina, uh, throughout your part of your childhood, over 30 placements. I know. To find a home. I know. And you said that at the time, uh, maybe you can't walk us through exactly what you were thinking, but as a child, it was almost as if you you were in survivor sk- survival skills. Yes. This was going to be a new place. Yes. And either I stay or I go. Can you walk us through how 
you ended up going from one home to the next. And who was your support? Were there any loving adults that you met at the time? When I entered into foster care, Lucy, the day before my 13th birthday, I met a counselor who welcomed me the next day when I awoke, let me know it was my birthday, kneeled down in front of me and said, welcome to the shelter. And she smelled like warm pet milk, cream of wheat, vanilla and brown sugar. And I knew then that love had its own smell. And she became the reason because I say that smell fixed itself upon me and it it marked me indelibly. So all I ever wanted was to get back to her. So I left home after home after home to get back to her. This woman was Jean Kerr. Yes. A white woman. Yes. What was going on at that time period in California in the sense of trying to place a a young black girl from Texas with a family, placing this girl with a a white family was out of the question? Yes, tantamount to genocide, to be quite accurate. Mm -hmm. And I understand the black community was dissolving at unfathomable speeds. And the idea that African-American social workers and freedom fighters had fought to restore and maintain the African-American family within the community. So the idea of this little black girl being adopted outside of the community was, you know, not highly regarded. But when we break away from the sociopolitics of it, and, and take it to the heart. I, race, color, creed, religion, I couldn't negotiate that as a child. All I knew were the politics of my heart. And what that said was, she sees me, she validates me, she's loving me unconditionally. That is how a child, a human, develops self-worth. That cannot be negotiated or remediated by politics. Uh, In your book, you talk about uh, how there was that moment that Jean Kerr went to court to adopt you. What happened? Ooh, Ooh. (laughs) she showed up. She wrote a letter. She advocated. She she stood in love. And I left the court. And as I'm running down the hall back in the girl's shelter, I hear someone crying, someone yowling. And I run towards the sound, and as I bust through the panic doors on the floor in the kitchen, fold up into a prawn, is this grown woman who had wanted me. And she says, I tried to make you my daughter today, and I couldn't have you. How old are you? I would have been 14. So at that moment, you became an official ward of the state of California? Uh, Yes. Yes. Fast forward for us, uh, Regina, because your story has a happy ending. Yes, it does. You aged out of the system. At 19. At 19. You went on to become? Many things. (laughs) Owner of a hair salon. But most importantly, I became a national spokesperson for youth in foster care and became the voice for the voiceless and an author Mm -hmm. 
and you you wrote this book, Somebody, Someone. Yes. You were on a speaking tour. Yes. And at some point, you you wanted to reunite with this woman, Jean right. Kerr. Right. Right. When my book was put into print, my editor said, "We need a photo for the cover of that book." I'm like a Rolling Stone gathers no moss. I have no photo. Well, they picked the photo from Corbis.com. When I am on my book tour, I get an email from someone, I'm so proud of you, sweetheart, because I had an interview, not someone like this one, with Tavis Smiley, and he said, what, would, what do you want? What do you need? I said, someone to tell me how proud of me they are. And when I left his office, I arrived at my hotel, there's an email, I'm so proud of you, sweetheart. What was your reaction? Oh, oh my goodness. I sort of like now, speechless. I, I, the power of believing. That email was from Jean Kerr, yes. and you went on to reunite with her. Can you describe that moment Ooh, when you saw each other again? How many years had it been? 27 years. And I, when I left her, she was this beautiful brunette, root beer, brown hair vivacious, beautiful smile. And, you know, I was 14. When I reunited with her, I was 41. And to see her for the first time, her hair down the middle of her back, gray, salt and pepper, I was envious of every gray hair on her head and wished that I had been a part of that process. I, um, yeah. <laughs> um, your story has been uh, written uh, a few times, mm-hmm. and uh, I understand that when uh, she saw you, she said, you were my first child. I never stopped loving you. All I could do was listen. They said I was the wrong color and that I wasn't allowed to love you. Yeah. Yeah. But you told her, do you remember the words? Oh, my God. <laughs> I told her, I called her Mommy. I said the word mommy for the first time in my life. I remember being in foster homes and they would say, you can call me mom. And I remember thinking, that's all I have is that word. And I'm saving that for my real mom who will come for me one day. And she did walk us through what happened to you or 40 during the formal adoption process. Yes. So we arrived at the Martinez courtroom, and Holly Eckwall was a counselor who worked with Jean back in the day. She found Jean for me, by the way, and she called one of her friends who was a lawyer, an adoption lawyer, and pro bono, they brought us together in the same juvenile courtroom, which had denied the petition nearly 30 years before. And under Lois, Judge Lois Haight, my mom and I were adopted. So, and with you was your child. Was my baby. Oh, my God. My beautiful, beautiful son, who was 16 at the time and where he had never been at least on my side of the family, a nephew, a cousin, a grandson, 
he became a nephew, a cousin, a grandson, a great-grandson. And that's a legacy. That's an inheritance that is priceless. Throughout your story, uh, Regina, it's, it's obvious that you uh, learned resiliency. What is your message to young people who may be in the same situation that you found yourself as a, a teenager? What do you want to tell them? I look at love, empathy, compassion as an act of resilience. And one of the most difficult journeys I believe many of us have to take is the 18 inches from our heads to our hearts. I would say to every young person, let it be your inheritance to always be willing to take that journey from the head to the heart and stay there and open that heart a thousand times. It will be broken 3,000. Open it 4,000 again and again and again and again and again. Be the gateway. Be, be the possibility of your own of your own success, of your own possibility. Own it. Demand it. Step into your, your rightful inheritance to be wanted and to want yourself and to allow adults who are willing to be that for you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Regina Louise is in studio with me. She experienced the foster care system when she was a girl. As an adult, Louise has become an advocate for at-risk children. Now, after the break, we're going to hear from a Connecticut woman about her experience aging out of the Connecticut foster care system. How can states and community partners help young people transition from state guardianship to independent living? We'll ask that question and more after the break. And you can join the conversation, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been hearing Regina Louise's story. She spent part of her childhood in the foster care system in California. She's now a motivational speaker, an advocate for at-risk children. She's author of the book Somebody, Someone. And Regina is in Connecticut today as the keynote speaker at the Village for Children and Families Girl Within Luncheon. Now, our next guest spent some of her childhood in Connecticut's foster care system. It's a system administered by the State Department of Children and Families, or DCF. Elena Farnsworth is now a student at University of St. Joseph. She joins us in studio. Elena, welcome to the show. Hello. So tell us a little bit about uh, your story, Elena. I understand, like Regina, you had also experienced different placements, um, different homes uh, when you were a teenager. Um, yeah. So when I was in DCF, I was placed in two different foster homes before I was placed in a shelter and then a residential, which is um, I'll explain it. Mm-hmm. So it's a home with other other young people. Yeah, it's like a treatment facility. It's it's different than a foster home. And then I was placed in a group home. But prior to me being in DCF, I moved a lot between um, 
family members. And when I grew up with my mom, we moved a lot just as a child. Like, I moved all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even know. I think it was, like, close to 40 times. So every time you ended up in a new place, did you just assume that this was not a this was not going to be something long term that you would be moving yet again? Um, yeah, I did, but um in the foster care, yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. I did. That's what happened. People got <laughs> sick of me and I was moved. Um, when you were moving around so much, was it challenging for you in terms of keeping up with your schoolwork or um, staying focused on something that was positive? Can you walk us through that? Yes, that was really challenging. Um, I did really, I did really bad in school. I wasn't able to focus, and I wasn't able to because I was moved, and there was different curriculums, and like schools don't always teach the same exact stuff. And I moved so much that. It was really hard for me to stay focused on my schoolwork and also the stress from moving. I didn't have friends because I moved so much. It was really hard for me to even begin to develop. At a point, it became really hard for me to just try to develop relationships with people because I knew that I wouldn't keep them, so they weren't worth making. So I didn't do well in school. I didn't do well in social settings. Um, I was really like withdrawn and uh, what were you were there any supports any person that you felt comfortable talking with um, there were some throughout the way um, like guidance counselors and stuff like that at school but I moved so much that like those changed as well mm-hmm. so it was really hard now, as you neared your 18th birthday, where were you living, and, and what was your plan? Um, I was living in a group home in Manchester, Connecticut, run by the village for uh, children and families. It's called Allison Gill Lodge, and I was there for about two years um, before I turned 18. Um, I'm sorry, what was you asking? I was just curious, um, as you were getting close to 18, that can be the time when uh, young people in the foster care system are aging out. What was your plan at that moment? Um, DCF had planned for me to go to like independent living, which was basically just like apartments that they had staff because I was in a group home where there was staff 24 hours a day. And um, so they wanted to not just put me in an apartment because they weren't sure that I'd be able to handle it. And so I moved to New Haven, somewhere I never lived and didn't know much about. (sighs) So you had to figure it out on your own? Yes, yeah. So because I moved somewhere where there was staff, they would, um, it wasn't, I don't know, there was like a, they would come in my apartment, like when I was sleeping, they would come in, they would do like rounds, and that was really hard for me considering the trauma that I have, um, especially to have a lot of third shift staff that were just males uh, just coming into my bedroom. So eventually I just moved out and got my own apartment, and that is when I had to really do it on my own. Uh, so are there other options uh, in terms of if you had wanted to uh, continue on to higher education, DCF still would have been your guardian? So DCF, um, yes. If you go to college right after you graduate uh, high school, DCF will pay for uh, most of it. You still have to get, you still have to apply for financial aid and all that stuff, but they will help you. And then they will often pay for your housing, like get you an apartment, get you a laptop and all that stuff. 
I was not ready to go to college like so many of my peers who were in the foster care system because I had just come from being treated, um, not that I was treated unfairly, I understand that, that there's rules, but I wasn't treated as an adult. And then I was moved into a place where I was supposed to kind of act like one, but I still wasn't really treated as one. And then I moved on my own and I was like, here I am, I'm an adult. Like I didn't really know how to be an adult still. And I was just, I was still in like a, kind of like a survival um, mode in my brain. Like I just need to make sure that I'm able to pay my rent and that I'm able to, you know, eat every day. And that, you know, so I wasn't able, I wasn't ready to go to go to college right away. So DCF ended up um, discharging me eventually uh, before I was 19 um, because I didn't go right away. And so then you officially are on your own at 19. Yeah, before 19, yeah. <laughs> yep, I was on my own. Uh, Regina, you went through the foster care system in a different state uh, uh, a much, uh, you know, a few decades before Elena here. But is her story familiar to you where you're trying to n- figure out how to navigate the system at a time when, because you were uh, with a, a ward of the state, there were always people around. But then when you're on your own, did you feel like you're prepared for that adulthood, that change? It's impossible to be prepared. In Lena's story, the, the beauty, the progress is the transitional housing, the intention of being that safety net once emancipation occurs. But I think still the oversight is the emotional maturity, the emotional healing. Before a youth or a human can have any sense of self-efficacy, they have to have a self, an intact self. And until that self is intact, the likelihood of particular types of successes developmentally are not going to happen. So if the average American child has a home in their parents' house until they're 26 years old, it, that tells you the emotional development you know, situation. So Elena, as well as 2 million foster care alumni, have, you know, we're not ready for that. Elena, I mentioned at the beginning of the segment that you're now a student at the University of St. Joseph. So you found a way. Tell us how you found a way to uh, be where you are today. Um, I found a way just, it was not an easy process and it wasn't like a quick uh, journey, but eventually I always knew that I wanted to go to college. I just knew that I wasn't ready. So I ended up going kind of ironically, um, when I was 19, I was almost 20. So it was not that long after DCF discharged me. Um, and I started part-time going to a community college for human services and I just, school it was so different than school was growing up because when growing up it was like I didn't really know what I was doing because I moved so much and I couldn't really do well and then when I started college it was like I get to pick when I go to class and and I'm doing so good like I can get A's like so I just was like it just felt so right for me so I ended up starting part-time going full-time and then um I actually got pregnant uh, and had my daughter. She came to my graduation for my associate's degree. And um, now I'm getting my bachelor's in May in social work at uh, University of St. Joseph. Congratulations, Elena. Thank you.
Today we're talking about foster care. Uh, in studio with me is Elena Farnsworth. Again, she's a, a student at University of St. Joseph. Uh, she has experience in the Connecticut foster care system. Also in studio with me, Regina Louise, an advocate for at-risk children and author of the book Somebody, Someone. Uh, she spent a part of her childhood within uh, the California foster care system. If you're listening today and you've experienced the foster care system, what are some supports in place that would have helped you? You can join the conversation, 860 uh, 7266. Uh, there's a report uh, put out by the Connecticut Voices for Children uh, just uh, last year uh, that finds that the state is often, state cares for children that are uh, aging out, they're often unprepared to be self-sufficient, the study finds. Uh, last year in 2016, 21% of all foster youth who aged out left without a high school diploma, 57% left without a job, 46% living in unstable housing situations. Uh, these are all uh, factors in how someone um, you know, may not do well when they're independent. Elena, from your experience, you found a way, but you must know other um, formerly uh, children in the foster care system that also aged out. What had happened to them? Um, by now, because uh, now we're all, the, my peers are mm-hmm. kind of like my age, so we're like 25, 24, 26. So um, now they're pretty much stable, but there's there's some of them that really got lost. Um, there's some that passed away. Um, there's some that are in jail. I mean, some people just didn't get to heal when they were in the system. They weren't given the tools to to learn how to really love themselves and also how to just function and be be an adult. It's you have to kinda of learn that. Like so it's really hard. Some people weren't able to, but I would say most of them are, are pretty do, doing pretty well at this point. Uh, the Connecticut Mirror uh, has reported that Connecticut DCF has expanded options for extending foster care through a program called CHEER, which uses federal funds, but it has uh, uh, specific requirements, and not all children or not all young people um, are able to stay on in the program. Uh, Regina, you travel around talking to at-risk children. Um, other youth who've experienced the foster care system. What are some supports in place that that you think are working in other states or just things that you've observed from talking with uh, um, other individuals that have experienced foster care? In California, we have a program, AB12. It's funding that extends foster care to the age of 21. I think that's incredible if those funds and the intention in working with the young people is designed in a way to continue the healing process. Because I think for young people, that's, that's, that's the mortar, the healing, the, the internal connection to the self. And just to elaborate on the beautiful comment Elena said, it's about the self-love. And if they can get that, if that time, you know, that the extension to 21 can be shored up with programs about healing, you know, dealing with the trauma, fostering self-love, I think the likelihood of incredible success is, is better. And not to say that California is, is doing something any different than Connecticut, but to have that extension is incredible. It's necessary. Mm. Elena, your thoughts on this idea of extending it till 21? Um, I think that would be a 
that would be a great idea. Right. I don't know if they do that in Connecticut because yeah. I haven't been in DCF custody for There's a while. There's fiscal but. implications to that, of course, uh, uh, but it's definitely an a, a issue that's worth uh, revisiting, and that's something that we hope to do on Where We Live coming up in the next few weeks to talk about um, some supports that are in place, some programs, and how policymakers can work to, to strengthen the system. Uh, I mentioned earlier, Regina, that you're going to be speaking at a luncheon later today. Um, again, you've got a very, uh, it's a hard book to read, uh, but it's a it's not hard. It's not easy to share uh, these difficult experiences, and and why why do you do it? I am compelled to to transmit the message, if you will, that there is no obstacle that is impossible to overcome. The human nature, the human body, is designed for personal resurrections again and again and again. And if the people who love us and are there to guide us can show us and mirror for us that unconditional love, you know, then healing is possible. And that's why I do this, is to use my story as medicine to show the possibility of continual resurrection. Period. That's it. Elena, you mentioned you're getting your bachelor's in May. Uh, what about your future plans and the fact that you have gone through the foster care system, you know what young people experience? Is that something that you're looking to address in the future? Um, absolutely. I'm going to go for my master's degree um, following. I'm actually going to be applying for that during this uh, winter break for advanced standing master's degrees uh, programs for social work. And from that, I will, once I get that, I'm going to go get my Juris Doctorate so that I can be a lawyer because I would really, like, my, my end goal and my passion is policy and working on policies that serve uh, vulnerable, oppressed populations such as foster children and, you know, so much more. Well, Elena, I appreciate you coming on the show today to talk a little bit about your story. Elena Farnsworth, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Also, Regina Louise, uh, who has written the book, Somebody, Someone. You have a forthcoming book coming. Can you tell us about that? Yes. My forthcoming book is Someone Has Led This Child to Believe, A Case History of Love. And it is pre-ordered on Amazon right now. I am so proud of this book, Lucy, because it's the second installment to my memoir, and I had a social worker who wrote in a file, someone has led this child to believe she is above average intelligence when I consider her below average or marginal at best. I had to challenge that. So I write this book with the case history. I actually have the case history as a character in the book. It is something. It's a must-read, if I must say so myself. <laughs> well, we, we appreciate you coming in today, Regina. Uh, so nice to speak with you, and we hope your first trip to the East Coast has been a good one. Awesome sauce. <laughs> <laughs> this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, it's World AIDS Day. A lot has changed since the epidemic began in the early 1980s. We'll speak to a young man living with HIV after the break, and you can join the conversation, too. 860-275-7266.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up Monday, WMPR reporters are back on the ground in Puerto Rico on the next Where We Live, an update from the island next door, including the latest on local recovery efforts in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Plus, graduate student protests, taxes, transportation will wade through state and national headlines. That's coming up on Monday. Now, today it's World AIDS Day. More than 1.2 million people have been diagnosed with AIDS in the U.S. over the last three decades. The epidemic began in the early 1980s, but since then, the number of HIV cases in the U.S. has decreased. Federal statistics show the annual rate of new HIV infections has dropped 18 percent between 2008 and 2014. My next guest is a youth HIV advocate at AIDS Project New Haven. He's also HIV positive. Kyle Rodriguez, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about AIDS Project New Haven. Sure. Uh, It's a nonprofit in New Haven. Um, It was actually the first AIDS organization in the state of Connecticut, founded in 1983, so pretty much at the start of the epidemic. And we provide holistic services for our clients, so medical case management, support groups, food pantry, acupuncture, um, mental health services, relapse support services. We really just try to take care of our clients as holistically as possible. I mentioned you are HIV you are HIV positive. When did you learn your diagnosis? Um, it'll be five years in January. It was January 28th, 2013. Mm. Now, you were, you were a pretty young guy when you were diagnosed. Yeah, I had just turned 18. Um, it was pretty traumatic for me. Um, just listening to the previous speakers, you know, I still didn't know how to be an adult yet. It was my second semester in college. And my doctor wasn't really supportive. Uh, he told me over the phone, which is illegal, by the way. Um, and he told you over the phone that you were you tested positive for HIV. Yeah, and he wasn't the most helpful. I asked him, you know, what do I do? And he's like, oh, just Google some infectious disease doctors in the area. Oh wow! So how did you how did you respond? What did you do, Kyle? Um, the first person I called was my mother. Uh, she's always been my rock, my number one supporter. And then after that, just by luck, I called one of my good friends, and he happened to volunteer at AIDS Project New Haven, which I did not know. And he was like, oh, I know this great organization. Um, I can hook you up with their resources. And, you know, flash forward mm-hmm. a couple of years, and here I am. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, in the show that with medical advances, a lot of people who are diagnosed, they have hope versus back in the early 80s when they weren't quite sure what was going on and a lot of people were dying. Can you walk us through how you um, access treatment and how you feel today, five years later? Yeah, I feel fantastic. Um, A lot of people always have the misconception of, oh, I'm so sorry, you're sick. And it's like, well, no, I'm not sick. I'm really healthy. My immune system is fine. Um, But I started receiving treatment at Yale New Haven Hospital. They have an infectious disease center called the Halen Center. Um, And my medication is just one pill a day. It has three different medications in it. Um, And it's just like taking a vitamin in the morning. I always take it with my food, and I have very little side effects. And I lead a normal life outside of taking a pill once a day and seeing the doctor every couple of months. How did, you mentioned your mother was your rock, how did others close to you respond, react when they learned that you were HIV positive? How did people react today? Um, All of my friends and family were super supportive. Um, They just took me in and really loved me for who I am. I receive all of my uh, stigma and discrimination actually like within the LGBT community. 
um, with, like dating online and, and things like that. Um, people, when, when you say so, how how does someone react to you when you say this? Um, so in the past, before I I'm in a current I'm currently I'm in a committed relationship, but prior when I was dating. Uh, I would tell guys that I was HIV positive, and they'd be like, oh, well, I'm sorry, you're not my type anymore. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, you must have did something that brought that upon yourself. Or, you know, I really can't handle someone like you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was really hard for me because the stigma made me feel like that I was less than human um, because people always assumed that I was promiscuous or et cetera, and so they didn't really value me as a human being anymore. Uh, you, I'd listened to a, a podca- podcast that was done in a New Haven area, um, and what I think is really striking about your story, Kyle, that um, you know, a couple weeks prior to you finding your diagnosis, you were going through a mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. Can you walk, talk a little bit about that and when you found that diagnosis, how you got the, um, the feeling that you, know, you could move on, you could have a productive life? Yeah, I always tell people, okay, so backstory, a couple weeks prior to my diagnosis, I had a suicide attempt and spent a week in the hospital. And I always tell people that I'm so glad that the suicide attempt happened before the diagnosis. And people always look at me confused. They're like, well, what do you mean? And I always tell them, in those two weeks in between, I gained like marginal coping skills and I realized that I wanted to choose life. Um, and the the mental health crisis just came from years and years and years of childhood abuse and trauma and sexual assault and low self-esteem and, you know, the angsty adolescent drama in high school. Um, And so one day I decided that I was going to take my life, and I'm so glad that I didn't. You learned that resiliency as well. Yes, yes. I mentioned today is World AIDS Day. You know, we remember people who have died from uh, this disease uh, throughout the world, but also a day to uh, talk about awareness prevention. What are some things you want, because you work at uh, AIDS Project New Haven, for someone listening who's afraid to get tested, what are some things that you can tell them to ease their mind that this is important? Um, I always tell people it's super important and it should be something that you do on a regular basis, depending on how sexually active you are, you know, every three months, every six months, but definitely at least once a year, you know, when you go and get your physical, just make it a part of your physical. You get tested for heart disease, you get tested for diabetes and high blood pressure, just make HIV testing a part of that routine check. Um, It's super easy now, it's a finger prick, you can receive your results in 20 minutes, um, and you only need a little bit of blood, and especially for people who don't like the needles, it's it's not as traumatic as people think. Mm. Um, but it's definitely important because the earlier that you find out that you're HIV positive, the higher your chances are of um, remaining healthy. We heard from a listener, Kyle, a little bit earlier uh, who said that she lives in a rural area and the stigma of AIDS has not changed there. People are still scared. She's also infected. How do we break that stigma? Doing things like this and inviting people like me on the radio um, and then also people who are infected, you know, finding those support groups at clinics and really talking to people and really going through that self-love and that self-respect and that self-confidence because once you build up that self-love, you feel, at least for me, I felt really strong and when people started to stigmatize me, it didn't affect me as much 
And then at that point, you can have that support system behind you and be courageous enough to stand up to the stigma and tell people, hey, well, you know, actually, it's not what it used to be in the 1980s or even the 90s or the early 2000s. This is what it's like now. And so for me, I've always decided to turn each incidence of stigma into a learning experience. And whether that person listens to me or not, I just hope that I planted the seed of intention. Kyle Rodriguez is a youth HIV advocate at AIDS Project New Haven. Uh, there was some news with the CDC uh, this fall, um, U equals U. Can you talk about what that means? Yes. Yeah, so that was incredible news for people who are HIV positive. U equals U stands for undetectable equals untransmittable. So essentially, if your HIV viral load um, drops to an undetectable rate, there is a very, very little chance of you transmitting HIV to somebody else. Um, so little that the CDC has determined that if you're undetectable, you are untransmittable. So for people who are HIV positive, that was huge because for a lot of us, we've been stigmatized so much. And like I said, um, we always felt like we were less than because people have treated us that way. And so to hear the CDC back this U equals U campaign, it was really empowering. And it at least for me, it felt like I can take back a piece of my life and a piece of my identity and tell people, hey, I'm not infectious, I'm healthy, I'm human, I'm just like you. And that just happened in September, so probably not a lot of awareness uh, for people that are uh, not within this community where it's being discussed, that what this U equals U means? Yeah, um, I notice in my day-to-day -day life that there's a lot of misinformation about HIV. A lot of people still know what it was like in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, like I said before, it's not the same. So I always take it upon myself to talk to all of my friends. All of my friends know about HIV now, whether they're high risk or not. Um, and then when we do testing at AIDS Project New Haven, we always do HIV and AIDS education as well. Who is high risk today? Um, so according to the statistics that I know, um, it's young gay men of color and also the transgender community, which gets left out of gets left out of conversations and they don't have seats at the table. And I know you had mentioned that the HIV infections have dropped nationwide. But when you look at the subsets of populations, it's actually increasing uh, in the LGBT community, especially young gay men of color. And like I had mentioned, the transgender community. Why is that? Uh, there's so many factors that play into that, you know, poverty, racism, homophobia, transphobia, um, and just a lot of cultural stigma as well. Like, I'm a person of color myself, and I know growing up there's a lot of taboo topics that you don't talk about in the house. One of them's being gay and definitely being HIV positive. You don't want to talk about those things. So it's hard for a young person of color to come out to their parents that they're HIV positive and also come out that they're gay or bisexual or et cetera. We talked about U equals U. I, I wanted to ask you about PrEP. Yeah. Tell us about it. So PrEP is this lovely little pill. It stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Essentially, it's a once-a-day pill that can help reduce the risk of HIV. So if you're HIV negative and you want to stay HIV negative, uh, you would take this pill, and essentially it just puts a little shield around your T-cells, and your T-cells are your body's fighters. Um, your body uses your T-cells to fight off infection when you get a cold. Um, so the fever that you experience or the runny nose, that's your T-cells trying to release the infection. 
Um, so this is a great pill. It's easily accessible. It is expensive, but there's a lot of copay assistance programs, and most insurance companies cover it. So I haven't met too many people that actually have to pay any money out of mm-hmm. pocket for it. Is it controversial? It can be. Uh, I've experienced people, I've encountered people who um, don't like PrEP because they think it prom- uh, promotes promiscuity. But it's very important to get really educated about PrEP and talk to your doctors about it because it's not the super pill. It only protects you against HIV. It does not protect against syphilis and chlamydia and gonorrhea. And it's important to have that broad conversation with your doctor because PrEP is only you know, one component in your overall treatment. You still need to wear condoms and get tested and retested and have conversations with your sex partners as well. I understand there's a campaign getting to zero nationwide, but also here in Connecticut, you you sit on a, a commission. Tell us what what where we stand in Connecticut. Um, yeah, so Connecticut just launched a getting to zero commission. So we want to get to zero new HIV infections, zero new HIV deaths, and zero HIV stigma. Um, it's been a very powerful experience for me. I serve as the youngest member on the commission, and so we just, there's a bunch of HIV leaders statewide who sit on this commission, and we just talk about how we can get to zero, and some of us are already starting doing the work. Um, yeah, what was your... <laughs> are we, are we going to get to zero by 2025? Is that the goal? I think it's possible. Um, Connecticut's one of the better places for HIV. There's a lot of HIV funding from the state level. And then also some of the preliminary numbers from 2016 show that the new HIV infections are under 300 a year. So we'll look forward to hearing more about that initiative. Again, Kyle Rodriguez, Youth HIV Advocate at AIDS Project New Haven. Uh, we'll tweet out some links uh, to AIDS Project New Haven and the great programs that uh, this uh, uh, nonprofit helps uh, in the greater New Haven area. Kyle, thanks so much for coming, up, coming in today, and we're glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Evan Sobel and Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend.